Hello there, I'm Paul Walker, teaching pastor here at The Meeting Place, and welcome to our podcast. We are a church for everyone in the heart of downtown Winnipeg. This podcast is the place where we broadcast our weekly teaching content and whatever else we find noteworthy to share. I'll have more to say at the end of the podcast, but for now, let's tune into this week's teaching content. I'm Paul Walker, and I'm a member of the pastoral team here, and if you're joining us for the first time today, you have picked a good one, because today we are launching a new series called Deconstruction with Jesus. Now, you might be already asking, well, what is deconstruction? Like, some of you are wondering if we're spending the next few weeks talking about Jesus's life as a carpenter, you know, construct, deconstruct. Others of you, well, you've heard about this concept of deconstruction, but you're not quite sure about it. And then there's others where it's like you have named deconstruction as an experience in your life or the life of someone you love. There's a lot to unpack this morning, and we're going to get there. But I want to begin our teaching time today by asking us to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to turn to the third chapter, and uh, you're going to find the Gospel of John if you have your Bible with you today. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. It's right after the Gospel of Luke and right before the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in verse 1. This is what we read. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus that night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. So in our text today that we just read, we encounter Nicodemus. He's a member of a renewal movement called the Pharisees. These were like the back-to-Torah people, and they wanted Israel to practice greater faithfulness to the Jewish law. The Pharisees believed that the Roman occupation was in large part due to the failure of faithfulness amongst the Jewish people. And Nicodemus is one of the key leaders in this movement. But he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And these were the 71 people who convened together to form kind of like a judiciary court. The Sanhedrin acted like a civil government and a court all in one. And in Jesus's day, the Romans gave people like Nicodemus a lot of power to judge in civil matters. They could pretty much settle the case on anything except for capital punishment. When it came to capital punishment, the Sanhedrin would have to turn to the Romans to approve a death penalty. So, by all measurable standards, Nicodemus is a man whom others would have turned to for answers and direction. 
by all measurable standards, he's a person of authority. Religious authority, political authority, judicial authority. He's a seasoned leader and a respected teacher in the nation of Israel. And so it really, it begs the question, why is Nicodemus meeting with Jesus? What's going on in his mind? Like, that he, a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin, would reach out to a traveling itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. Like, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't Jesus be the one to book a meeting with Nicodemus? Well, that's not the only odd thing in the story. The other odd thing that we notice in John's Gospel, third chapter, is that he came to Jesus at night. He came to Jesus at night. At night, no one would have seen him. He would have avoided all those awkward questions from the other religious leaders, like, oh, you're talking to Jesus. At night, he could spend time asking questions without anyone overhearing. And so he has a conversation with Jesus. And it's not the easiest conversation because Jesus does not give easy answers to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has a worldview that he sees the world through, and he's trying to interpret Jesus through his worldview, through his closely held assumptions. So he's a Pharisee, and we know that the Pharisees were the kind of people who cared a lot about who was born to whom. You knew you were part of God's people if you were born by Jewish birth. And here, Jesus turns it on its head, as Jesus always does. And he turns to Nicodemus and he says, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. How can that be? Asks Nicodemus. And so we find Nicodemus, the man who should have all the answers. He's searching out to Jesus with questions. In the evening darkness, Nicodemus finds himself left with more questions and unresolved tensions. And his story, the story of Nicodemus, is not unlike the story of many that find themselves in the darkness, which has been called and labeled deconstruction. They find those that are in deconstruction often find themselves searching in the night, perhaps even a dark night of the soul, and they discover there are no easy answers. So I want to tell you a few of these stories, and I'm going to start with the story of Daniel. I first met Daniel as he graduated high school. And he was a really smart kid. Like, he loved science, comic books, science fiction. He would talk endlessly about those. But Daniel was also a bit socially awkward, and he was a teased a lot in school. Friendships were hard to come by for Daniel. But where he did seem to connect was in his local church. And so he grew up in his church his whole life, and he knew all the stories. You could ask him all the Bible trivia. He knew it. Some of his friends would have even said that Daniel was very sure and committed to his church. But when I met with Daniel, I could kind of tell that there were things going on beneath the surface. He had a lot of unnamed tensions in his beliefs. See, Daniel grew up in a very rigid faith context, a kind of church context that didn't have a lot of room for questions. They had a lot of certainties. And they didn't welcome questions. And added to that was his mother was a very strict person who didn't like when Daniel had questions. And so in the past, when, when Daniel like, came to his mom about questions about like, science and faith and how this fit with that, 
Daniel was just told to stop doubting and believe. But now, it was all changing for Daniel because he went off to university. He was out of his parents' home. And for the first time, he encountered worldviews that were not his own. Soon, he stopped attending church. He started drinking more and getting high with his friends. The visits home, you know, at Christmas time and Thanksgiving, well, they were full of fights between Daniel and his mom, and this really scared some of his family. So his sister reached out to me. She said, hey, Paul, could you give Daniel a call? So I did. And I went into the conversation really hoping to be a friend with Daniel and, and to have a listening ear. And so that's what I did. I heard about his upbringing. I heard about his wrestling with faith. And at the end of the conversation, I tried to encourage Daniel that Christianity was a lot wider than the narrow form he had encountered. Like it didn't have to be a choice between his love of science that he was studying in school and his faith in Jesus. I tried to encourage him, hey, why don't you read this book and that book? But I think I was too late. Because a month later when I checked in with Daniel, I realized that things had shifted. He let me know at the start of our chat that he didn't know what he believed anymore, that maybe I could call him an atheist now. And as he shared about this new decision, it wasn't like an exciting discovery. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of sadness in his voice. Like he felt betrayed by some of his upbringing. He felt angry at himself. And so he walked away from faith. That's Daniel's story. And it's a story that I'm sure others of you have heard many times before. I want to tell you another story this morning. Shauna's story. Shauna grew up in a typical Mennonite church in southern Manitoba. You know, the kind that has those cottage cheese pierogies and that farmer sausage. Well, the church raised up Shauna in the faith, and they did a pretty good job of it because as she left for high school and went off to university, Shauna had a pretty good grasp of the Christian faith. Shauna went to school to be a nurse and worked hard to pass all her courses. And after she graduated, she found herself quickly employed. She was assigned to the pediatric ward of the hospital, and it was her job to be with sick children day in and day out. And as anyone who works in healthcare will tell you, it takes a lot out of you. And certainly this was the case with Shauna. Nursing demanded a lot. And she shared with me in a conversation, the thing that took a lot out of her was the experience of not seeing every child go home from the hospital. That some cancers do not go into remission. And this really created a searching in the night. For her, it was more than just the demands of the job and the grief that accompanied it. That was expected. She knew hard things were ahead of her. But what she was feeling was something at the heart of her faith. That she knew in her head that God was good, but now she felt like it was being tested. Shauna felt at odds with some of the simplistic explanations that people would provide to her. People would say things to her like, well, I guess God needs another angel. Where was that in the Bible, she wondered. How could you say that to a grieving family? Well, all this came to a head one day, and Shauna turned to her husband, and she said, I don't think I can go to church anymore. She named her discomfort, her disorientation, and even what we're calling deconstruction. 
Now to any husband, this would be quite a challenging conversation, but it was extra awkward because Shauna's husband was in seminary training to be a pastor. Well, that's not the end of Shauna's story. Because rather than being alone, she found herself reaching out to wise voices. She processed her thoughts with a spiritual director. She met with mentors. And these wise and trusted voices became places she could ask tough questions to. She told me when we chatted about her story that she became okay with asking tough questions to God. She became okay with not having easy answers. She even allowed herself to have doubts and encounter mystery. That on the other side of the journey, she actually discovered it was a good thing. That there was a vibrant and mature faith on the other side of testing. And I think her story tells me that it's possible to forge a valid and vibrant faith from the ashes of fiery testing. Today, Shauna serves as a leader in our church. Well, we have three stories today. Nicodemus, Daniel, and Shauna. And they bring us to the big question we're asking in the series, which is, what is deconstruction? And as we're going to discover today, it's a loaded word. And words have different meanings to different people at different times. So let me tell you, there's a whole academic side of what deconstruction means. The word was first coined and came into popular ver verbiage uh, by the French postmodern philosopher Jacques Derrida. I also think he was a part-time model, because wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> and Derrida, well, he suggested that we need to be really mindful of how we use words. Language to him was a signifier and not the form of meaning. And so for him, any text could be endlessly dissected because nothing has a fixed meaning. Derrida suggested that words themselves privilege power and that we actually need to pay attention to buzzwords because those shape narratives, which is kind of ironic because deconstruction for many is a buzzword. But now there's a popular use of the word deconstruction, and we tend to kind of define it like this. The act of breaking something down into its separate parts in order to understand its meaning, especially when this is different from how it was previously understood. So like, this is all the rage in the cooking uh, channels that you watch, or you go to like these fine dining restaurants. You present a recipe broken apart so that you can taste all the elements separately. Like, here are a few examples. This one guy went to a restaurant, and he ordered milk and cookies, and they brought him that. He's like, where's my milk? They're like, it's frozen on top. Another person wanted a Caesar salad, and they went to a fancy restaurant, and they got this, a head of lettuce, some Caesar dressing, and some oddly shaped croutons. Another person went to get a deconstructed hot dog, and there it was. I don't think I'd be too happy if I got that. Now, in the last decade, people have begun to talk about deconstruction as it relates to faith and belief. If someone is deconstructing, they're taking apart different elements of their belief. They're exploring what it is they claim to believe and how that works out in their life. And they're on a journey of trying to discern what is good and healthy and what is not. And so when we apply deconstruction to faith, we might define it like this, a sudden awakening to conflict within one's most deeply held beliefs. For some folks, 
this is a short-lived phase. Others, it's a gradual process. And then for others, it feels like a hurricane and their world is ending. What's important to emphasize, though, is that deconstruction is not this one-size-fits-all experience. People have drastically different experiences of deconstruction. A.W. or A.J. Swoboda puts it like this in his book on the topic. He says, nearly 60% of people raised in Christian churches deconstruct their faith following high school. The numbers have faces. Faith deconstruction isn't a one-size-fits-all experience, nor does it always entail walking away from one's faith. I think the reason that there's so much diversity of experience around this topic is that people don't mean the same thing. Like when someone tells you, I'm deconstructing, pay close attention because words have different meanings to different people at different times. And so for some people, deconstruction just means demolition. It's the tearing down of their beliefs. It's taking dynamite to the whole thing. It's setting the house on fire and watching it burn down. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is an unhelpful and even a violent way to approach the topic of faith. Yes, there are things that need to be demolished. Yes, there are some things that need to be torn down. But you don't want to set your house on fire when all you need to do is fix the plumbing. You don't want to use dynamite to fix your furnace. I find it interesting that uh, Jacques Derrida, the guy who came up with the word deconstruction, said, we need to pay attention to the kind of language we use, that we need to doubt our doubts. And so I would just ask, if you're using demolition, if that's what you understand deconstruction to mean, what does it say about you in the process? What do you believe is true of yourself? How are you treating yourself as a person? Is demolition a process of patience or a process of violence? And if it's the latter, how's that going to work out for you? So that's probably the first way of understanding it. But I want to suggest to you that there are a few other more helpful metaphors to talk about a journey of faith and wrestling with doubt. And the next metaphor is renovation. Renovation is this process of improving a broken, damaged, or outdated structure. So back in June of 2020, I lived the story of renovation. My wife and I purchased our first home, uh, and we took possession, and we knew immediately we're going to do some renovations. Like when we went through the house before we bought it, we said, oh my goodness, we need a new bathroom here. Like the one that we had was scary. The toilet did this. The pipes did this. Yeah, I, I won't get all into it. So what we did is we tore back that bathroom with the studs. And we thought this project was going to take us about three weeks. It took us six months. And that's because when we did tear the, uh, the bathroom back to the studs, we discovered knob and tube wiring in our whole house. And it added thousands upon thousands of dollars to our renovations. I had to like go around my house and put holes in every single room. I had to tear up boards and run electrical wire. I had to call an electrician friend to help me because I didn't know the first thing about rewiring a house. It was so much work. There was drywall dust everywhere. And there were so many days where I felt like, oh my goodness, I've bought a lemon of a house. 
And at that point, I really did feel like burning the house down. But I'm glad I, did, I didn't. I'm really glad I didn't burn my house down. Because when we got to the other side of the renovation process, we had a beautiful home that we could raise our kids in. And if you burn things down, well, you have nowhere to live. So renovation is this beautiful metaphor, I think, for what it means to go on the process of maturity. It doesn't deny that there are things that need to be refined, but it asks, what needs to be changed? How are you going to change it? And who is going to help you? See, so often, the reaction to unexamined beliefs is the polar opposite reaction of unexamined disbelief. You go from one pendulum to the other. And I want to suggest that maybe our faith needs a renovation and not a demolition. Maybe what's under the carpet is that beautiful wood floor. Maybe you just need to knock out a wall and make an open concept. Renovation, I think, says that you are a valuable person, that you're worth investing in. And it recognizes that change is a thoughtful and messy process. Well, one more metaphor I want to give you this morning, and that's the metaphor of restoration. I want you to think about, like, restoring a fine piece of art. You know the kind of art that sat in a dusting mansion for 300 years? It's full of grime and pollution. It's got cracks in the frame. The colors are old and faded. But then, like, a skilled art restorer comes and begins to restore the art. They apply just the right balance of acetone to lift up the years of grime and dirt, but they're careful not to damage the, the painting. They scrape, they brush, they dab away the veneers of grime. It's a methodical, painstaking work, and you would never think to use a sledgehammer or dynamite when you're going through this process. You could say the same for restoring someone's faith. That sometimes the faith we inherit, sometimes the beliefs our churches of origins hand us, sometimes they have a bit of grime on them. But that doesn't mean we need to throw out the painting. Maybe there's a beautiful work of art underneath. Restoration says you're valuable. Restoration says your faith is worth the effort. You are a work of art. Restoration recognizes it's a thoughtful and painstaking process. So that's our three metaphors for deconstruction today. Demolition, renovation, restoration. Some of them are more helpful than others. But I think another really helpful thing to understand is that deconstruction is not an end in itself. It's part of a larger process. We were never meant to deconstruct forever. Deconstruction, it describes just one step, one of many steps. And if we forget that, we're going to find ourselves endlessly subtracting forever, endlessly in the night. And so there's construction, there's deconstruction, and there's reconstruction. We're going to talk about this more next week as we talk about what it means to uh, work through doubt and, and to have doubts. But in construction, you're kind of handed a set of beliefs. You're handed the basics. They're like, here you go, and it's a good thing. Like, you got to start somewhere. you got to build a box somewhere. Uh, when I was growing up in a Pentecostal church in Lloydminster, I was handed a bunch of beautiful things. A love for scripture, a love for connecting in worship, 
I, I, I learned about things like the Trinity and resurrection and spiritual gifts, lots of good and beautiful stuff. I still love my church that I grew up in. But then I found myself going off to Bible college, and when I went off, I was like, ah, oh, man, this is just a formality. I don't know what I really need to learn. And then it hit me. There's a lot I needed to learn. And so I found myself in a deconstruction phase, a time where I was like, huh, I need to re-examine this piece and this piece and this piece. And sometimes that was a joyful discovery, and other times, well, it was painful because not everything I was handed from my Pentecostal church in Lloydminster was pure goodness. Some of it reflected the grime and dirt of culture or a shallow theology. And so I had to do the hard work of clearing away some of the dirt and letting the colors shine. And I think we all do because, uh, I'm sorry, is anyone without sin? Is anyone a perfect person? The only true goodness is Jesus Jesus himself. And often Jesus is mediated to us. And so we all have to go through refining process. This is the language of scripture. So I want to leave you with this question. How will you deconstruct? Like deconstruction might be true of you right now, or it might be true of someone you love. It might be true of a future you, because we don't always get to choose if we go on this journey. Is it going to be a process of demolition? Is it, or is it going to be like the work of renovation and restoration? I want to leave you with this challenge this morning. Don't go on the journey alone. Don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. You don't have to wrestle with questions by yourself. You don't have to go through the fiery furnace of deconstruction alone. I want to tell you a story to illustrate this. Uh, there was once this painting of Jesus called Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. And for decades, this famous painting now hung in a Catholic church in Borja, Spain. The local congregation loved this painting. It like greeted worshipers as they came in the door. But after 90 years, it was in rough shape and it had all the grime and faded colors that you'd expect. Some of the paint was flaking off because of the moisture in the church. Well, an elderly member of the church, her name was Cecilia, she had enough of the deterioration, and this was one of her favorite paintings. So she decided, I'm going to restore it. So by herself, and with no formal training, Cecilia set about the work of restoration, and it didn't go so well. At first, the local police thought someone had vandalized it. And then the art world was shocked when they discovered it was a failed restoration by an 80-year-old Cecilia. And now the art world had to dub the painting a new name. It's no longer Ecce Homo, which means in Latin, behold the man. This painting, which they can't restore the old painting, but this painting is called Ecce Mono, behold the monkey. Forever this painting is a parable about the modern inclination to go it alone, to not trust in wise voices, about doing it yourself. And so I want to say the same thing to you today. Don't go on the journey alone. You, your faith, is a work of art. You are a work of art. You are God's workmanship. 
And what I want to say, what we've been saying in this series is that if you're going to go on the journey of deconstruction and sometimes you get to choose it and sometimes it happens to you, do it with Jesus. Deconstruct with Jesus. Deconstruct with people Jesus has put in your life. So back to Nicodemus, the man who met Jesus that night, the man who searched out Jesus with questions. Well, at the end of John chapter 3, Nicodemus departs into the night, and we're not quite sure, like, is this guy going to follow Jesus? We're not sure where he's at. But Nicodemus' story doesn't end there. We read of another appearance of Nicodemus in John 19, which takes place after Jesus' death. And this is what we read. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Nicodemus, the man who comes to Jesus at night, appears in day to retrieve the body of Jesus. The man who wanted to bury Jesus with questions now buries him with a great act of love. 75 pounds of, of, of spices. It's an extraordinary amount. It would have been multiple years' salary. It was a quantity that you would only use when you buried someone who is royal. And in this action, Nicodemus proclaims Jesus as a king. It was a public statement of his devotion to Jesus. And it has led many to believe that Nicodemus has had this quiet journey from disbelief to belief. We think that he's among the number of Pharisees that joined the church in the book of Acts who move from darkness to a new day. And I ask you, might that be true for your own story today? Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We're now going to transition into our regular question and response time. This is the time in our Sunday morning gatherings where we take a moment to dialogue with questions that are texted in during the teaching time. We call this time question and response because we don't claim to always have an answer. Let's listen in now. It's Q&R time. I'm sure some of you have questions. Tivo is coming with those questions. Wow. Awesome, Paul. Um, well, first of all, question for me. Question for you. <laughs> from me? Who picked, oh, who from picked you. the theme song? That was, that was bumping. When you came out, I was like, go get them, Paul. Go get them. I was like, oh, wait a second. Go get them, Jesus. Go get them, Jesus. That was, that was awesome. Go get them, awesome. Jesus. I like that. Anyways. <laughs> um, so, first of all, um, we have a few questions, Paul. Yeah. So, strap up and get ready. Um, the first one is, in the case of uh, Daniel, yeah. what is the next step after they walk away from their faith? Is there a next step? Can we help them find their faith again? Yeah, what a powerful question. And it kind of already reveals your heart for the lost. You know, the heart for the, not the 99, but the one that went away. Jesus tells us that this is the Father's heart. So I just want to thank you for having that heart for the lost. 
And that's part of the reason we're in this series. Our church has a heart for, the, for those that are not the 99. We always want to be a church that looks outside our walls and is saying to prodigals, come home. As far as what you do, I think the most powerful thing you can do is be present. So in Daniel's story, I still talk with Daniel. It's not over. We're still friends. I'm still asking questions. I still ask him about his comic books and how things are going with life. Mm-hmm. You're present with people. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like the obligation that this is all on you, but I would just pray for them. Keep them in, in prayer. Uh, be a listening ear. Hear their story. Invite the Holy Spirit to just speak to them. And, and especially in that kind of process, I think a lot of of the work of, of what it means to transition away, it's not, a, it's not an easy process. There's already enough pain to it, so certainly don't add to it. Don't feel like you need to shame someone. In fact, you should never shame someone. Never, like, pile on. Um, the book of Jude tells us to be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to do, those who doubt. Romans 2 tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So be kind, be present, intercede on their behalf, and, and certainly try to, try to engage some of their questions if they turn uh, to you and ask questions. Something I learned recently uh, from a pastor, I was, I was chatting with him about different pastoral practices, and he shared with me with what he calls, he calls it spiritual consent. And what is, is anytime someone shares with him kind of the darkness or, or kind of the unresolved tension, he always stops and he asks this question. He says, thank you so much for sharing. How are you inviting me to respond? Wow, okay. Thank you so much for sharing. How are you inviting me to respond? Because don't rush in. Don't rush in and, and find yourself overstepping. Always go with their permission. Yeah, there's some initial thoughts, unrefined, because this is just question and response. I don't claim to have all the answers at all. Next question. We're going to go through them quickly here. So this one has a few parts to it. It says, you mentioned a stat about folks who grew up in the church deconstructing after high school. 60%. And, well, okay. Then you just, and they were like, oh, is that 64%? I guess you've answered that one. Um, and then the next part of the question was, does TMP need to do more to help young adults who grew up here with this process? What does that look like? What does the space look like? So the simple answer to that question is yes. Yes, we need to do more. We need to do more. Mm-hmm. And I think a big part of that, and we'll talk about this in the week to come, weeks to come, is learning to hold things in complexity and harmony, to go on the journey. Uh, so often in the ways that churches especially approach younger people is we tend to give them the most dumbed-down version of Christianity. Yeah. And we yeah. don't allow for complexity. We don't allow for questions and doubts. And I think we have to do a better job of modeling a holistic faith, of the faith that's been forged with fire. If they don't see it in their leaders, if they don't see it in their parents, um, they're not going to see it in their own life. We all need guides and journeys on the way. And I think it starts with us. Change always starts with us. This one is coming from somebody, I think, who might be experiencing 
some mm. of the stuff um, going through a difficult time. So they say, Paul, you say don't go through the process of restoration alone. What if the people close to you, in brackets, loved ones, are responsible for your falling apart, in brackets, yeah, if the yeah, if the people who are close to you are responsible for your falling apart, and like I don't want to read too much into the question, but I'm, I'm gonna maybe assume this. Maybe it's a painful hurt, because often the stories of deconstruction I he I've heard personally are stories of deep pain and hurt and betrayal yep. by people yep. that they trusted. For sure. Um, and I would say, no, don't turn to them, right? Like you need to find wise voices and trusted voices. So do the hard work of searching that out. Mm -hmm. Have those conversations and don't think you're going to solve this with one text message or one night of questioning. This is a journey the rest of your life. It's ahead of you. But Jesus is with you in this. And maybe a suggestion is TMP. You can find, this is a space where you can find those um, I hope that's true. I, I yeah. really hope it's true. Mm -hmm. And so for those that are here, if someone turns to you with questions, I hope you would make space for them. I hope you would reorder your life to hear someone's story. Thanks, Steve-O. And then last but not least. Okay, we're doing Are you sure? I think we're running out of time here. Last but not least. Okay. <laughs> um, somebody say, thank you, Paul, for approaching such a sensitive topic with so much love and grace. Okay, I have time for that. <laughs> awesome. Question and response time. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Paul, for answering, uh, for handling such a sensitive topic with so much love and grace. Um, we have a few questions, so get ready. I'm getting ready. I'm going to get right to it. So the first question is, what will be wrong with the idea of the Christian life being one of ongoing deconstruction if we think of it through the lens of the phrase reformed and always reforming? Oh, what a great question. I think, obviously, I can tell that that person's paying attention well, and they have a bit of background of, like, how to talk about these things. Yep. So what, what is wrong with endlessly deconstructing? I think, I mean, that is one of the questions of our postmodern age, is essentially we're always taking things apart and apart and apart. And I think part of that is then you never move into action, and you never find a home. And I would actually, when we talk about like something like uh, reformed, reformata, that reformed and always reforming, they don't mean like rethink Christology or maybe rethink if Jesus is God. That's not what phrases like that are saying. What they are saying is, what does it mean to be faithful in this cultural moment? And I think that always needs to be work of the church, is asking how is the good news of Jesus reaching our culture around us? And that's, that's always going to require a listening ear. And, and certainly our methodologies change. Uh, our orthopraxies will change, but not our orthodoxy. Uh, but certainly, we're not, always, we're not always clear with what orthodoxy is, right? Because especially depending on the kind of church background you were raised in, maybe you were sold something like a prosperity gospel or something like that, and you find yourselves up against a big wall. I want to say, like, there's, there's a deep well in Christianity, if you would choose to look. Awesome. Um, and then the next question. Someone says, 
Sometimes I feel like it's not safe to ask these hard questions and still hold on to the trueness that Jesus is Lord. Yeah. I feel like when I ask questions, Christians try to fix my situation and give an easy answer, as though they have to protect God with logical answers. Yeah. Why are some Christians, why are some Christians afraid of the gray area and the unanswered questions? Where can I find a mentor that is okay with the wrestle? What a loaded question and a beautiful question. Like they kind of said a lot there, right? Yeah, well, let, me, let me respond the best way I can. Remember this question response, not question and answer, because sometimes we don't have time to fully answer, or sometimes we're not claiming we have all the answers. So why is it that we have a culture where it's not safe to ask tough questions? That's kind of like the first question there. And I would say part, part of that is kind of our, the way Christianity has interacted with the North American culture. North American culture is very much a feel-good culture. We don't actually have a lot of space in our cultural language for grief and loss. We tend to avoid it. Um, we tend to, and that's why like you have like cliches and tropes like a midlife crisis, where you have people like living their lives like, oh, I'm never going to die, right? And never contending with these hard questions. And I think just the general culture and the way it's landed with and works in North American culture, is it's kind of created that reluctancy for hard spaces. That's not true of every Christian expression. And it's certainly not true of the language of Scripture. So where can you turn? I think start, like Joel was saying this morning, Joel Jolly, start with the Psalms. The Psalms that cry out from the depth of their being. Read Lamentations. Read the book of Job and sit with tough questions. And one more, one more little piece. So often, Christianity in North America wants to be comfortable, and our comfort is destroying us. If you sit in a hospital bed and you never turn over, you're going to grow sores on the side. And I think part of what we're experiencing of the dysfunction of our age, why so many people are just questioning is that they're actually identifying a lot of a lot of what's going wrong with with the church in north america we're sitting in our hospital beds we are more concerned about comforts and having a good time and jesus being like this like optional extra to our life than actually living the call that jesus calls us to my experience is that some of the people I've sat with that find themselves in deconstruction, they are some of the most faithful people I have ever met. And they're not having questions and curiosities and doubts because they somehow lack faith, but because they actually feel the falseness. Wow. Yeah. And so church, like, let's, let's follow the ways of Jesus. Let's dig in deep. Let's be people who who actually want to live our lives and reorder our lives for the compassionate cause of Jesus. Jesus is calling. They say that the way of Jesus has not been found, it's been not been found easy and dismissed. It's been found hard and abandoned. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And his arms are outstretched to each and every one of us. And though it is a yoke, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
You'll know this if you, if you take the steps to follow Jesus, and I'd love to talk with you after the service if that's true of you. And Let's... then the last one. Okay. <laughs> and this is kind of, um, this, these are my favorite types of questions, the how, how questions. So mm-hmm. how can the church walk through deconstruction with the people well? And how can parents um, prepare mm-hmm. children for de- deconstruction? Great question. We're going to answer that next week. <laughs> I'll see you guys next week. Uh, thank you for facilitating Q&R. How about we uh, end our service now in a blessing? I invite you to stand with me. It's a Franciscan blessing, and it's one of my favorite. And if you would like to receive this today... Um, it's often true that in ancient times when people wanted to receive a blessing, they extended their hands to receive. So, and the one that wanted to give a blessing extended their hands like this. So here's my blessing for each and every one of you. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your hearts. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and the exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that you may reach out your hands and turn their pain to joy. And finally, may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world, so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Amen. Go in peace, and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you would like to take a next step and plug into our community or contribute to the work of The Meeting Place, we would love to hear from you. You can check us out at themeetingplace.mb.ca. Take care, and God bless.